Hello, friends. I recorded this interview a few weeks ago, and I was going to include it in one of our episodes, but it came out kind of long, and I didn't want to cut it up, so I'm just going to release it as a special bonus episode. It's one of our kaiju-related role-playing game interviews with Jonathan Wright, who made a game called Mecha vs. Kaiju. So we'll play the theme song and maybe do a little ad, and then we'll get into that interview. One, two, three, four. Monster movie. Fun time, go! 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 With Precious D and Honey Bee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another of our special role-playing game episodes. Today, I have with me Jonathan Wright, who has written a game called Mecha vs. Kaiju, and there's a couple of different versions of it, so we will get into that. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Dom. So... As I mentioned just now, there are a few different versions of this game, and you're working on a new one. There are, yeah. Um, the uh, MVK story kind of starts um, uh, several years ago. They had a uh, one of the first D20 um, variant systems. It was called True 20, and it came out mm-hmm. with uh, from Green Ronin. And um, mm-hmm. they had a contest about... Um, uh, like, yeah, they wanted to show how open world uh, their system was, how many different variants you could do, uh, you could create. And so uh, Steve Kenson, uh, who was the man behind uh, Green Ronin at the time, uh, had a contest, create a, a setting for our game. And so I sent them a, uh, uh, a little blurb about this idea I had for Mecha versus Kaiju. And I'd recently had this game idea. And then this contest came about. And... Um, they wrote back and they said, basically, we read the title and uh, we were sold. So they gave me a license. This is way back in like 2005. And they gave me um, a, a license to use um, True 20 and to brand it that way. And um, well, so, yeah, that was the first version of MVK. It came out in 2008 and um, sold maybe like 100 copies. It was not, I didn't know anything about marketing and uh, it was uh, it, it was just sort of like, you know, like out and gone. And, and that was pretty much that um, until the uh, kind of like the new era of um, giant monsters and robots started, like, you know, in the, you know, the mid-teens. And um, that was when my friends, you know, started going, hey, you know, I think it's about time you want to go back to MVK. And like I was working and teaching and, you know, all, you know like kind of living my life and, and playing games a lot. And I started thinking about it and I'm like, yeah, that could that could be uh, that could be something. And that was um, that was kind of the germ for the um, uh, the the second edition a Mecha versus Kaiju, which was um, released with the Fate uh, with the Fate uh, Core engine, which had just recently at that point had this monstrous Kickstarter. I mean, it was just literally like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think they I think they ran on that money for like you know six or seven years. I mean, they're coming out with source <laughs> books that they had talked about in that Kickstarter, like you know, for years afterwards. So um, 
so that system was um, like strictly um, uh, a storytelling system. Like the, the, the dice mechanics were minimal, um, you know, and, and but what it, what it meant was the system was completely hackable. Like you could do so, you could do so much with it because there was so little there. So I I ended up adding a lot to it, and plus it was released through Creative Commons, which meant that um, uh, it, you could freely use the rule set, and and other people could um, uh, could use the stuff that you created. So um, I'm a little disappointed. I've never seen anybody use the MBK rules except me. But you know, they, it, <laughs> like I said, you can you can create so much stuff with that. Uh, so they you know they were just building their own stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been re uh, releasing Fate source books ever since then. I had a successful Kickstarter uh, in 2013. This book was uh, was released in 2014. I've been putting out supplements ever since. I noticed there's also a Cipher System version of it. There is, yeah. Um, uh, last year I put out my last Fate source book, which was a fantasy setting um, inspired by an anime that like. You know, not a whole lot of people know called uh, Or Battler Dumbine, and um, it didn't sell like Gangbusters. And I, I kind of felt like I was like, I had done as much with Fate as I could, and so I really started looking for um, for a, a new edition. I thought it was time. You know, um, uh, you know, Fate's great, but it it, it it seemed to be kind of showing its age a bit, and I was really looking for something that was a little more crunchy. I was always adding sort of mechanics to the game, you know, to, to make it a little more crunchy. I grew up, I'm a, I'm a grognard, I'm 53, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons, I played first edition and Redbox back in the 80s, mm -hmm. and I've played Same. every, yeah, exactly, right? So, like, you know, I've played every system, and um, uh, so, so I, do, I do like crunch, it, you know, it, it, it's fun to play around with the fiddly bits and 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 build different things and so i was looking for something that, that had kind of like storyteller elements and crunch uh cyber system does that uh, pretty well it is a class based system it's very open uh class based um but i think I, I i wanted something that was a little more freeform than that i tried cortex and cortex again is a great system their their, their licensing agreement wouldn't allow me to sell on drive through RPG. And that's just, it's a limitation of the way that their licensing works. And um, yeah. so that, uh, as good as Cortex uh, is as a system, for something that, um, you know, for something that I'm gonna be marketing, I just couldn't limit what I was selling. Which is why um, I'm working together uh, with a good friend of mine named Jeremy Forbing, and we are creating uh, a variant of uh, fifth edition D&D called uh, 5e Ball. And that's going to be the engine for the new Mecha versus Kaiju game. Yeah, I looked at that a little bit and I was confused for a moment because I had seen that you were working on a Cortex version. And then mm -hmm. I was like, wait, wait, what is what is this? But then I, yeah, I found your post where you explained why you weren't doing Cortex anymore. And I do think that's a little weird that they don't let you sell it on drive-thru. <laughs> It's very bizarre. It, it's it, it's a licensing thing. They you know, and they have they have reasons, and they're you know, they're they're good reasons from like their business point of view, and you know, it, it's it works for them as a company. It just doesn't work for like the small creator, and so yeah, I just had to uh, to, to find something different. Um, what's interesting is we kind of went back. Um, and by the way, uh, uh, Jeremy Forbing, who is like my rules czar 
Um, he has been writing D20 products for like over a decade. He has literally dozens of products on the um, uh, the Dungeon Masters Guild website through mm-hmm. uh, Drive Through RPG. And um, you know, if we can, um, you know, if we, if we can put that as a, as a link um, uh, <laughs> as, as well, that would be great because uh, because sure. his stuff is amazing, and uh, he brings just a wealth of not just rules knowledge, but like historical knowledge. And he was the one that noted that the origins, uh, one of the first versions of 5e tried to do um, kind of a dice pool mechanic. It was uh, rather than using static bonuses for like strength, agility, or skills and things like that, um, they used die codes. So like if your strength was really low, you might have a D4 for your strength. And if you were... Um, like a barbarian might have like a like a D8 or a D10 for your strength, and so you would roll that plus a D20 whenever you were doing anything strength related, and um, and that mechanic really it, it really resonates with um, uh, what I was trying to do uh, with Cortex. Um, so uh, you know, so we've kind of gone we've gone back to that old build of um, fifth edition. And we've incorporated that, and we're using that as the core mechanic for Five Evolved. I participated in that playtest. I don't remember that. I do remember like superiority die and and stuff like mm-hmm. that that got kind of got thrown out that certain classes had, but I, I did not recall that. It was an early build, and like you say, it it, it, it didn't last. It was a little it was a little more different than uh, than like you know the previous editions. I think you know it's like a step too far for them. Uh, for us, it's it, it's it's just right in line with with um, the play style we like. Um, you um, uh, like if you want to take an action, you call out your traits. You've got um, uh, in um, in Mecha versus Kaiju, we spent a long, long time building the trait sets. Um, our goal was to well, my goal was to create a system that would allow you to basically do the kind of action and drama from anime and manga. So that was, that was the core that we started. That's core idea we started with and all of the mechanics flow from that. So uh, that's why you don't have like, like um, physical or mental attributes. You don't have skills. Um, You know, what you have are, we start with aspects from fate. Uh, That was like Mm -hmm. one, that's kind of the core storytelling mechanic so we kept that so you have a series of aspects that describe your um uh your personality your your, your kind of like current goals your identity as we call it and then there are two aspects uh, that are that are called drama and those two aspects are basically two dramatic parts of your life that are in conflict with one another and so sometimes you'll be performing an action that's like related to um uh, sometimes you'll be performing an action that's related to one part of your traumatic life versus another, and those two are like you know always in conflict. So you you pick one of those, um, and those all have a die code. All those are um, uh, a, a d6. Uh, then you have your style, how you perform things, and that can be anything between a d4 and a d8. And um, it's like you know, are you um, you know, are you going to do this in um, uh, you know, are you going to do this like you know, like like hard or soft, you know, uh, uh, quiet or loud? Um, the um, 
the styles are uh, are bold, creative, steady, subtle, and swift. And so you decide, um, and you have varying varying diet codes based on what kind of character you build. And then the third thing you have is values. So your values are basically uh, what's important to you with this action that you're taking. And uh, those are, um, uh, this was an int- uh, uh, an interesting mechanic. Uh, again, coming from, um, you know, from, from, from Jeremy's uh, a fevered game design brain. Um, these come in pairs that are sort of opposing. Um, like there's composure, passion, there's kinship and self-reliance, there's ferocity and spirituality. And each one of those represents a particular thing that is important to you. You build your character and you can have those two as being equal, or you can boost one of those um, into a higher uh, type of die, and you can reduce the other one. So they're always sort of in balance, uh, you know, like sort of point-wise. But, um, but, you know, sometimes you have a character that is like, you know, they're all, you know, they're very headstrong. They don't like, you know, really keep their cool very strong. So maybe they have like a D8 passion and a D4 composure. And then depending on uh, what the situation is, they might have to, you know, they might have to roll composure. Yeah, there are sort of long-term in-game benefits to rolling a D4, like you get more XP in that scene um, because you are challenging yourself as part of the story. Uh, and that's really, um, uh, you know, that's really kind of the way I like to play. I like to give players you know, if you want to be like a power gamer and you want to get like, you know, roll all D8s in your dice pool, go for it. If that's the way you, you like playing the game, absolutely do it. If you want to do things that are like a role-playing challenge that might actually not be optimal, you can also do that and you'll be, you'll be rewarded from like a role-playing point of view. And those are your three main uh, trait sets, your um, uh, aspects, styles, and values. And those three, you will always roll those along with your fortune die, that is the D20. Your traits are basically sort of weighing fortune one way or the other. And that's, and that, that's kind of the, um, the, the fun of the game. It's that, that's, where, that's where the chance comes in. I want to step back for just a moment for any of the less geeky listeners in the audience. Uh, I want to mention drivethroughrpg.com that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. is a website that you can sell PDF. They sell PDFs of role-playing games and uh, some print on demand. Not everything on there is print on demand, but a lot of stuff is. The, a lot of big companies are on there, but also individual indie creators are on there. And it's kind of the place online to find uh, PDFs of, of role-playing games. It really is. Uh, I found something the other day that was not on there. It was on the Paizo website and nowhere else on the internet. I was surprised they were not selling it on drive-thru. So that sounds strange. It was a kaiju game that is no longer in print, but somehow Paizo has the rights to it and nobody else. <laughs> it's not originally their game, but... I won't go into that, but we will put a link in the show notes to uh, Jonathan's work and his co-creators work on drive through all the, the fate stuff is there that we've been talking about. And the, uh, the, if you like true 20, it's not really an active system anymore, but it's, that is all still on drive through. That's a great thing about drive through is that they have a lot of stuff that is not 
in print and has been out of print for a long time, but it doesn't really cost anything to just put a PDF version of it online and let people find it if they still want it. So absolutely. And and the great thing about DriveThru is that it it's it is like a it's like a store. They have a storefront. So when you go to the webpage, yeah. you got all of these like covers with the titles and you're like, Ooh, that looks interesting. You click around. It's just like, it's just, it's just like a bookstore. Um, yeah. Which, which, which is why, you know, selling there is, is, is so important to like, you know, small press uh, creators. And, and I would say regardless of what system you like, um, check it out and poke around for that particular system. Like if you like, you know, if you, if you like D20, um, there is just like mountains of stuff there. And that was also kind of our inspiration for switching over to D20 was just because there are, you know, there's over a decade's worth of, of source material and everything that is released through the, um, the open gaming license uh, is usable. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can, you can use it in your personal game, but also all those game mechanics can be incorporated into our game. And, um, and that's actually what, uh, what Jeremy has been doing is, is, you know, kind of like, taking ideas from all of these different OGL um, sources, both his own as well as others, and blending them together into this, into this one system. So, um, so yeah, it really has the benefit of, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a decade's worth of game design that we're, that we're putting into it. Right. So this new version we've been talking about, it's not on drive-thru yet. I assume it will be when it's finished. You're developing it through a Patreon right now, correct? Right. Yeah, we've got um, uh, the Patreon has um, uh, it launched launched last uh, summer, and I've been working with um, with all my patrons, and um, the tiers that uh, for the for the Patreon are set up for uh, basically uh, uh, kind of three levels of interest in the game. Recruits, which is uh, the three dollar level, you get a monthly update on the rules, all of the all the changes, all the um, you know the play testing and all of that stuff that, that's happened. You just get every month you get a new version of the rules with uh, with updates. The pilots at the five dollar level um, can uh, per- participate in online play testing, scrimmages. You know, uh, I, I have regular um, Tuesday night and Saturday morning play tests where people can just like drop in and um, and talk about the game, try out new ideas. And then the ace level, which is ten dollars, is an actual online campaign I'm running uh, with a great group of people who are all not only really into the genre, but also many of them are into game design. So, you know, we'll we'll run like a two or three hour session that maybe take like twenty minutes afterwards and talk about sort of what worked, what didn't. Uh, I take a ton of notes from from all of these sessions, what pe- what the players are feeling about things. And then we spend the you know spend a couple of weeks going back into the rules, reworking things, tweaking things, sometimes ripping out whole mechanics and rewriting them because <laughs> that's what you got to do. And then like a couple of weeks later, we come back together and um, you know, run another session and uh, and do it again. It is an actual campaign, so they um, and we're at risk of getting into lore. And I, I would warn you that I can I can talk about lore a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't well, know I do. That, but. I do want to talk about the lore a little bit because, or, or maybe a lot, uh, because uh, as we say, this version's not out yet, but there are three other versions out, and if you already play or want to play in any of those, it's it's the lore that connects all those different versions. 
And of course, you could just exactly. take that lore and, and use it with any system that you're already using. And any any of these versions would be good just for getting that part of the game. And that appears... I've got PDFs now of every version, and that seems pretty consistent over the different iterations. It is, yeah. It's, it... Before we get right into that, though, I was curious, you kind of already answered part of this, of why it seems like you keep switching systems. And I was curious if you were just trying to make the setting available for as many different systems as possible. Because uh, you I, know, could I, see, um, I could certainly see someone doing that. I mean, I've seen Green Ronin themselves have done that with their their Freeport setting. Is mm-hmm. in several. There's several different rules versions of that, and uh, they've done that also with their their Blue Rose setting. Uh, there's like three different versions of that. So is that something you were at all trying to do, or it just kind of happened? It just kind of happened. I have to thank um, uh, an old friend of mine um, that I met like in second grade. We've known ever since there, a guy named John Phillips. And I was talking some some giant monster ideas, um, trying to come up with sort of a, a new origin for kaiju, where they come from, um, something that would be consistent with sort of as close to real world physics as you could get. And of course, then I got into like Asian mysticism because I've always been fascinated by Asian religions. And um, I'm trying to think, you know, where do these things come from? And I was thinking, oh, maybe they're, you know, they're genetically engineered or something like that. Maybe they were weapons. And my friend uh, John Phillips just said, what about kaiju on the DMZ? And that idea struck me like a lightning bolt. The idea of like, you know, like North Korea creating giant monsters was just, it was absurd and yet somehow perfect. And like early 2000s, so like, you know, North Korea was becoming a lot more belligerent at that time. And so, uh, and so that combined with like sort of my, uh, my interest in Shinto, the um, indigenous religion of Japan, uh, mm-hmm. love of World War II, all of this sort of, um, sort of evolved into, in, you know, at the, at the end of World War II, Japan is losing, they become desperate, and a corrupt Shinto priest attempts to summon a demon to fight for Japan. And they do it in Hiroshima on the day that the atomic bomb is dropped. So as this demon is coming through the gate, it is struck by an atom bomb and mutated and driven insane. And the Japanese beg the Americans to call off a monster they just dropped on Japan. And the Americans are like, huh? So... They actually work together the next three days, drive the monster west to the city of Nagasaki, where it is uh, killed with a second atomic bomb. That, and that is, the, that is the first kaiju in the world. Genetic material is stolen, taken to North Korea, where it is uh, grown into the first earthbound kaiju called Kaibutsu. It's my ode to, uh, to, to Godzilla. And... Um, and it's first used in uh, the Korean War. Um, after that, uh, after that, the world spins as if every giant monster movie ever made actually happened. So Kaibutsu okay. attacks in 1953. They start making um, uh, mutated insects, moths, so giant moths start flying around. Yeah. Looking at all this, I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. I'll, I can tie in all of these 
movies into this setting and have like analogs for all of the monsters show up. I'm I'm also um, I'm an English and history teacher, so I love sort of alternate history stuff. And so I, I tried to tie everything. A lot of my source books have timelines that actually mirror events in the real world. And I was like, okay, so how does how does the U.S. and the Soviet Union not end up like you know, just like dominating these, these giant monsters and destroying everything? So the communist countries I kind of took care of, quote unquote, because they're they're blamed for the creation of the kaiju. So like th their credibility politically is shot. Nobody trusts communist countries because they blame them for creating these monsters. And the U.S. I don't know if you've if you've covered a whole lot of the the giant bug movies from the 1950s. Yes, we began with King Kong and we worked our way chronologically through what we perceive as the history of kaiju movies. So you so you covered them, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. We've done and yes, all, so, yes, we've so, done yeah, all of them. Those. Giant mantis. Um, all. Yep. So like I say, th in this world, all of that stuff happened. So like I'm looking at all uh -huh. like this rash of giant bug movies in the 1950s and think, well, if all of those happened at the same time, America is in big trouble. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I imagine what would happen in the 1950s is if, if this occurred. And so um, what ends up happening is the entire southwestern portion of the U.S. is just evacuated. Uh, because it is overrun with giant bugs. Okay. Yeah, and I think like you know, okay, so, uh, the, like they go south, they get to Texas. Well, Texas is not going to give uh, is not going to give in. So the Texas Rangers basically hold them off. The, uh, the the Mexican military moves actually north and 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 helps them hold the line. They stop the giant bugs at the Mississippi River and they stop them at the um, uh, uh, at the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they um, uh, and the 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 bugs don't want to go any further north than like you know uh, some of the the you know they stop at the more northerly states. So basically, that you know if you can imagine that box, uh, imagine the U a map of the U.S. and that box uh, is uh, is now the, um, uh, the 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 continental control region, and uh, it was just evacuated with the exception of the Mormons. Who refused to leave, and they basically turned <laughs> okay. um, uh, Salt Lake City into a fortress and um, uh, Native American. And politically, what happens is the Native Americans go, "Okay, you're moving out of here. We'll take it. You know, we'll help <laughs> you fight. You know, we'll help you fight. <laughs> the, God. The, the, yeah, we'll help you fight the bugs on the inside. But this is now ours, and yeah. the U.S. agrees, and so that becomes the First Nation." So that that you know, yeah. So that box is 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 essentially um, you know it is it is a sovereign country bordered by the U.S. One thing I've always wanted to do is set up like a sandbox campaign set in that mm -hmm. area, where like you know you're either you know you're a member of the Continental Rangers, you know like that's guarding the uh, the the border, or you're a Native American, or you're a Mormon, and and like a, sort of like a real sort of like mi military sci-fi campaign almost post-apocalyptic because it's like, you know, a lot of areas have been abandoned and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of desert areas around there. So uh, it could have a real post-apocalyptic vibe. It could have this like, you know, cool military action, stuff like that. There's a lot of fun stuff that you could, you could do with that. But that was how I created a world where there are no superpowers. Everybody is kind of working together to defend their country's 
Um, oh, you mean, sorry, you mean political, political superpowers, not. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah, so, yeah, not not Superman superpowers. superpowers. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Soviet Union's kind of, uh, Soviet Union still exists, but they're rather insular. Um, America is like, you know, they've got this situation that they're dealing with. So they're, you know, happy to, uh, to help kind of locally. But like uh, North and South America form kind of their own block. United Nations is more a um, kind of like joint defense uh, organization. The borders of all of these nations, people contribute to like, you know, internal countries contribute to the external countries. Students have a ocean border to create like, you know, defenses and things. And yeah, it, uh, it, it the, the, the world kind of spun in a very different way. Um, but uh, I like to think, you know, a believable way, uh, you know, if, if all of, you know, if all of these things were true, this is one way that it could have, you know, that it could have all shaken out. So the, this is laid out in what the fate of America book. Yeah. Fate of America details um, uh, what happened in the U S uh, even Leo looks at like some of the, the, the political progression, um, you, know, you know, how did it affect some of the, the elections and things like that. Fate of the world uh, covers basically um, everything that is not um, uh, Asia or uh, the United States. And that's where um, I, I really had a lot of uh, fun looking at Africa, looking at what would happen if colonialism ended um, uh, like, you know, early in the 1950s and how things would have shaken out there. You know, if if everybody left Africa alone, what would happen? And I think it would uh, you know, they would redraw borders based on language groups. Mediterranean states would have stayed the same because those are those are very strong political and trade powers. But everything like, you know, in Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa, basically, I looked at a language map of Africa and I created the borders based on that. So um, Swahili is kind of the universal language of Africa, but uh -huh. each language group kind of just like um, uh, carved out their own political identity. And it also follows natural borders rather than like, you know, uh, Belgium needs like so many thousands of acres of land. And so we're just going to like cut a box out of this section here and like, you know, never mind what's what's there uh, or who's there. Um, so, yeah, like it follows natural borders, language borders. And um, I'd like to think that, you know, left to their own devices, you know, uh, uh, Africa would have um, would have done quite well. Now, when the new version of the game comes out, are you going to have to re-release all this with the new rules, or are these source books, are the rules in them light enough that it won't make much difference? Well, I think the the, the setting stuff will. You, you can certainly use all the setting stuff, and I'll be, um, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll certainly be um, adapting a lot a lot of it to the new system. The history itself is basically going to be the same. Kind of like moved forward like 20 years basically <laughs> so you know because i started this in like okay. early 2000s but essentially right. essentially things will happen you know the setting will basically be the same i uh, just because that is you know that's the one that i think is most accessible to gamers mm -hmm. it's the one that has the least amount of um preconceived notions I'll give an example I, I did a source book called kaiju punk which is a cyberpunk setting within the the MBK world, and it takes place 
in a world in a world where something happened in the 1990s um, or, or the early 2000s, and it, it changed a lot of things. I got a lot of inspiration there from uh, Shadowrun, yeah, which makes fantasy and cyberpunk elves and dwarves and things like that. So um, working within the existing history of MVK, I had like sort of a cyberpunk um, setting that was like, what happens if the end of a campaign didn't go quite right and then like a lot of things changed after that? It's kind of, it's, it's kind of that idea. I've got a, uh, uh, there's a um, post-apocalyptic setting that I never got a chance to do. I'll, I'll do it eventually, but it's like, you know, what if the kaiju win? You know, how do you mm-hmm. live in a world that where like society basically breaks down and, um, you know, the, the kaiju are just able to roam freely across the world. So, um, uh, so all of these, from the kind of internal logic of, of, of the game, all of it fits together um, because of the man who invented the giant robots, uh, a guy named uh, Professor Rampo Chiari. He's the classic uh, uh, elderly mad scientist type character that you've seen in like so many especially like you know 60s and 70s Showa era uh, like the guy the guy who created titanosaurus like that's that's really sort of my uh my my, my uh you know my, my template for for this guy but he actually had a vision and during kaibutsu's first uh attack in japan and uh, you might notice the source material i'm getting this from uh his mother was praying um and holding him while watching this monster destroy the city uh, saying, don't worry, we're going to be with your father soon. And this <laughs> okay. child, right? right? <laughs> so yeah. 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 This, this child suddenly has this vision and he, um, from a scientific point of view, I'm saying he connected to the um, unified field theory in a very uh, sort of intuitive way. And for just a moment, he saw sort of the, the, the shape of the universe. And he has spent his entire life teasing out little scientific secrets from that one vision that he had as a child. And so when he was a teenager, he created the first um, remote control giant robot that like, you know, he could control with his voice. You know, so getting into like, you know, Tetsujin um, and um, a giant robot. And then in the 70s, he create he's able to kind of break the code on it's called Gazer Technology, and it's a, it's an acronym related to um, uh, using gravity as a, uh, as a as a as a power source. So um, he creates a super robot, one giant super robot called Kagutsuchi, named after the uh, Shinto god of fire. And that's my my ode to the Shogun warriors, Raidin and and and, and Mazinger and the like. And then. Um, and then for some reason in the 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s, the kaiju disappear and people think, oh, OK, maybe they're gone. Maybe they've died out. Maybe we won't have to worry anymore. And then 1984 hits and it's like kaiju summer. They just explode and like the um, people are, 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 are freaking out. Um, uh, Professor Chiari creates sort of a, um, uh, a mass producible uh, robots smaller, but can you know can be created in uh, in numbers, and that's where sort of the uh, the military sci-fi mecha teams come into play, and and that's kind of the 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 genre that I go uh, you know that I stick with for kind of the rest of the uh, of the campaign history, and I think 
is the most accessible to um, the players because everybody wants a robot. Everybody wants to customize their robot. They want to fight the way they want to fight. And so, like, you know, just like you have, like, you know, uh, uh, barbarians and rogues and, and, and rangers in a fantasy game, you can have, like, you know, the, 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 you know, the tough, brutish mecha who, like, gets in close with a kaiju. Another one who's, like, sniping them with a rifle. Um, you know, another one's trying to, like, trip them up or, or somehow, like, sort of, like, um, reduce their ability to fight. And the system is set up so that you can fully customize your mecha um, however you want. And, and that, was, that was really an important, um, an important mechanical part of the game for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, we should mention the game basically presumes that you will be part of the mecha assault force and fighting against kaiju. Mm-hmm. We've been looking at a couple of different games, and some of them you're fighting the kaiju, some of them you are the kaiju, and others you can be either one. Yeah, there's no, no reason why you couldn't do that as well, because the um, uh, the rules for creating kaiju is a similar point by to building robots. The trick is that the kaiju have to be the kind of threat that requires multiple people to attack in order to, to attack it. So, so yeah, they're, they're designed to be scary. This new system you're working on, is that going to be your end game or have you considered doing versions for like savage worlds or age? For, for, as far so as you I'm, started with green Ronin. Right. Sure. Um, I'm, I should say age is the green Ro- one of the green Ronin system and they have a age creators Alliance and they allow you to do a, a degree of your, your own stuff to release with their system. Right. Um, I'm 53. So you know, this is probably the last system that I'm going to create. I don't know. Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe for my 60th birthday, I'll decide I want something new, but I'm, I, there are no, there are no plans for a new system. Uh, which is why we're, we're really taking our time and, 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 and crafting this one, making it everything that we want. Always in previous systems, it's kind of been adapting the game to the system. And this time we, we started with, like I say, with this kind of fundamental idea of I wanted to model anime and manga action and drama. And so... That was why we really took our time creating the uh, the creating the stats to make sure that the decisions that characters were making when they're taking actions are designed to make them think like a character in uh, in an anime series or a character in a manga, and, and and to kind of have everything motivated by what's inside their character. So, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna punch somebody. In a lot of games, that would be like, okay, well, you're going to use your strength for that. And in this game, it's like, well, you could use your strength, sure. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, why are you doing it? Like, what, what kind of part of your personality is kind of motivating you to do that? Or is it like a dramatic situation where, like, you know, the, the, the situation you're in is related to something that is important to you personally? Well, there, that should have something to do with how good or bad you are at doing it uh because that's the way it is in in like in in an anime you know if if you if you care about the situation you're going to be better at it than um than you know than you might be otherwise um Mm -hmm. so yeah so so everything is designed 
for the player to think from the point of view of you know what's important to my character at this moment and and those are role-playing choices that you make as you are assembling your dice pool so that's why you know i call it calling out your traits so you're basically say okay i'm going to do you know i'm going to use my um sarcastic to a fault personality aspect and uh you know because uh even though i'm trying to fight this guy i'm you know wisecracking while i'm doing it you know i'm i'm attacking in a creative way you know so i'm like trying to throw him off and um and I'm trying to help my friends while I'm doing this, so kinship is important, uh, you know, is important to me as I'm doing this. And so each one of those is a die that you add to your okay. uh, that you add to your dice pool, and then you um, you roll those with the fortune die, uh, d20, and then you just add two of them together to get your action result. And then uh, one of the dice that's uh, left over is going to be your impact on that scene. And so sometimes you end up making so, oh, I want to, you know, I want really want to have, uh, you know, a, a higher impact. Uh, so maybe I'll take a, a lower result, or maybe it's just like, well, if I don't connect, it doesn't matter. So I'm just gonna take the highest, you know, add the two highest dice together for my result and take whatever impact I can get. This is reminding me a little of, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. version of Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. when he has that bare knuckle fight in the beginning. Yeah, he's in, he's attacking with intelligence. Yes, he's not punching with his strength. He's punching with his intellect. Or uh, the example you just gave of uh, using a smartass, maybe you tweak the guy's nose and snap his suspenders before you stomp on his foot, and you're not really necessarily using your your strength or your agility to make that attack. You're using your smartass quality to make that attack. And yeah, uh, and That's it, a very it, interesting approach. Yeah, and it, it, it allows the players to decide what's important to them at that particular time. Uh, my, my goal has really been to avoid the, um, you know, my turn, I roll, I hit, I do this damage, moving on. <laughs> and, um, sure. so, so there's like, you know, there are conditions that you can add to a scene that will make it, um, you know, easier or harder to do certain things. You can, you can add a condition to a um, uh, to an enemy to make it easier to affect them. You know the 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 idea you can, you can create boons for your friends that will make things easier for them to uh, to perform particular actions. And all of these options are uh, are there in game to to not just make it easier for you to beat the bad guy, but to do it in a way that is fun and that adds to the story. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's good. Well, Jonathan, we've been going on for a while now, so I think <laughs> this is a good place to to wrap it up. But uh, we will put the link to all the things, to the drive-through and to the Patreon. Uh, when this new version's done, what is the format it's going to come out in? Is it going to be like a, a player's book and a game master's book or just one big core book? Or what do you... The, the idea what do you is have that, um, in mind uh, to release it as like a, a like a single core book, hardcover, color. There'll be a crowd crowdsource campaign um, uh, in the summertime, uh, hopefully in June. Okay. And um, right. I've already got um, I already got our interior artist working on uh, on artwork. So the uh, the money for the the, the money for the Patreon is all going to the book and the game. 
So like every, every you know everything I'm taking in is uh, is you know going out in the form of art and um, uh, and writing uh, layout things like that. So yeah, it will, uh, hopefully in in June we'll launch that campaign and um, depending on how successful it is, the the basic idea is to have like a single core book, but of course there will be stretch goals um, for like additional supplements because as you mentioned, I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of areas that I can go into for um, additional source books. Maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that when it launches. I'd be happy to. I've certainly kickstarted way too many <laughs> games. Haven't we all? I'll definitely be taking a look at that when uh, when it's out. Find the links for all the things in the show notes. And Jonathan Wright, thank you very much for joining us here today. Folks, if you enjoy our show, please consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash MMFTG. Until next time, I have been your host, Precious D. Remember to keep calm and seek shelter in basements. Don't misuse science. I won't see you, but you will hear me next time on Monster Movie Funtime Go. You've been listening to Monster Movie Fun Time Go. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on your podcasting platform of choice. Our theme song is by the Texacato folk rock punk featuring Lita Lopez. You can support the show, find links to our social media, and even leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash mnftg.